Future Makers. I'm your host, Matt Prater. Today we're talking with John Dawson, the International President for YWAM, and author of the book Taking Our Cities for God and What Christians Should Know About Reconciliation and stacks of other books. Now, YWAM is a ministry with 15,500 missionaries working worldwide. Welcome to the program, John. Good to be with you, Matt. Now, John, you've got a bit of an interesting mix of accents there. Is it, is it American? Is it New Zealand? Is it Australian? Where's it all from? Well, I married an American, but I'm actually a Kiwi, and uh, I love Australia. And one of my children is uh, working here in Newcastle, and we just had a little granddaughter, our first Aussie in the family. The accents are really mixed up. We've got five passports in the immediate family so far. <laughs> That's fantastic. Now, John, um, tell us a little bit about YWAM. Uh, we might have listeners at the moment thinking, what's YWAM stand for? Do you want to tell us a bit about that? Yeah, I had a friend that went and knocked on a door once, and uh, somebody said, who is it? And he couldn't think of anything proper to say, so he said, well, I'm with YWAM, which confused the person. You know, I couldn't think of anything. Is this the full of brush salesman, or what is this person? Is it? But actually, Youth with a Mission is a 46-year-old network of people from uh, 49 different countries, a majority uh, non-Western. They're from many different nations, obviously, and... Um, they're involved in evangelism and mercy ministries and training. So within that, there's a university system. There is, uh, you know, people running refugee camps and agricultural training. And But underlying it all is a, a belief that Jesus is really special. You know, I've spent a lot of my life out in war zones and places of conflict and pain in the, in the inner city. And I just find that the ranks thin out in those places. I spent 22 years of my life in the black community in the inner city Los Angeles. And I just see that there's something unique about Jesus and the followers of Jesus. Um, people who are part of Christianity are not necessarily like Jesus. But when it gets to the hard yards, I just see uh, the, the true nature of Jesus revealed in heroic people. And so there are many networks and sister organizations like Youth of the Mission. Youth of the Mission is just one of them, but uh, it's part of the inheritance that I feel God's given me, and it's a privilege to walk with these people. Now let's just take a step back. You said you spent 22 years in a black community in the States. Tell us what you were doing there. Well, some of you might remember the beating of Rodney King, L.A. burning down, 5,000 buildings damaged, destroyed, I think over 50 people died. Well, that took place uh, in the neighborhood where I lived and raised my kids. And, um, you know, when I was a kid, I was a Jimi Hendrix fan. I loved African-American people and music. But being in New Zealand, I didn't have a clue about it. So I was a, you know, fool's Russian where angels fear to tread. I found myself being based for a season in the United States um, as a person that recruited and raised funds and was a strategic leader within Youth of the Mission. And uh, I went to move to live in the black community, not for any noble reason to reach the place, but just because I, I was fascinated by the African diaspora. And, um, and when L.A. burned down, you know, I began to grapple with the issues that were there. A lot of my neighbors had moved from Mississippi and Alabama. They had come away from the rejection and injustice of that part of the U.S., and they ran into our California version of it. And so, uh, you know, I faced a lot of difficulty in that circumstance because my physical being as a you know, white male Anglo-Saxon, just for me to open the door of my house and step outside was to invite memories of rejection and injustice. And so, you know, my kids got beaten up and my tires slashed and my windows broken. And so I had to have answers. And so uh, 
we lived out a drama there and we, we started many ministries. You know, we started a school and a preschool and a missionary training center and all kinds of outreaches, which uh, grew to about 300 staff and different operating locations and all that's still going on today. And that's uh, where I gave a lot of my adult life. And I, I deeply love that part of the world and that community. You um, uh, talk about um, Jesus like you know him. Uh, you grew up in the land of New Zealand. Uh, <laughs> tell us about uh, when you came to know Jesus. Well, you know, I knew religious stuff. Uh, I think I was touched by God when I was a little tiny kid, around about four to six. Just you have a tender conscience, you have a God consciousness, you haven't had it educated out of you, you haven't really been impacted by peer pressure in the schoolyard or anything like that. So I have early memories of having a profound awareness of a kind creator. And, um, you know, my parents attended various evangelical churches, but it was all a little bit vague and disconnected to me. So it wasn't really till I was 19 years old, and I was a student teacher there in university in Auckland. And, you know, I'm 54 years old, so this was sort of um, hippie counterculture times. And, um, and I just went along with the crowd, other university students. But I had a profound uh, encounter with the Lord, you know, Kids go through things. I went through a broken relationship with a girl. I drank too much. I, I think the people in my Baptist church would have seen me as totally isolated and unbeliever. But actually, I really knew that God was good. I didn't quite know how to fit in with church. But I, I had an underlying sense that God was there and that God was very kind. But I think I was struggling with the issue of really obedience to God. And uh, I think when I was about 12, I read a biography of some man or woman of God and I just started crying a lot. And I, I looked back at that and realized that God had touched me and said, I want you, son, I want you to follow me, and I have some kind of calling for you in special work. And at that time, I imagined classical missions, you know, paddling upstream in a canoe and heroically dying in a malarial swamp, you know, uh, within 18 months, you know. But I ended up in, in urban missions. And in fact, I ended up being the urban missions director of Youth of the Mission. So I had about uh, 3,200 staff who were focused on the 300 great world-class cities. So a lot of my life was spent in that environment, which is actually a little bit more intimidating than the real jungle. Now, you also um, talk a lot about um, promise keepers. Uh, I've heard you um, mention that before. Tell us what promise keepers is all about. Well, promise keepers is something I've been part of from the beginning, which is a men's movement in the U.S. At one point, we had over a million men in Washington, D.C., and um, basically it's about us drawing aside as men and exhorting each other to get our act together and to treat our wives and our sisters and our daughters properly. And um, it's not a, an act of withdrawal from women or superiority or uh, masculine self-congratulation. It's actually the opposite. It's actually we need to take time out and inventory our uh, strengths and weaknesses and look at where we are in our culture and whatever nation we're in. But as I said one time in Washington, D.C., we had over a million uh, guys, and um, I am one of the leaders of the North American church. They don't know about my other life down under. But So there was a white guy up on the platform on public TV that invited all the other white guys to kneel down and ask forgiveness of God and our mates who were Jewish and who were you know, Latin American and who were Asian American, Native American and African American. And uh, and there was about four hundred thousand of them that you know 
butts in the air, foreheads on the ground, just really said, yeah, we, we have a lot of remorse. We have regret for our arrogance and our injustice in the American story. And so um, the white guy up there asking to do that was me. It would have been a shock to most of them to know that I was actually not an American. They just think of me as one, but, you know, that's okay. <laughs> Good missionaries go in disguise. <laughs> now, there might be some men listening at the moment thinking, that sounds like a pretty good movement. Um, maybe I need to find out a bit more about the principles of that movement. Yeah. What would you say to those men that are listening now? Well, obviously the implication of a promise is that you consider what are the virtues of a husband and a father. And then you make a conscious decision to pursue them. So you look, at, you know, I've raised four kids. My oldest is 30, and he's a missionary pastor in Brazil. And, uh, you know, I've got two granddaughters. And, and my youngest daughter, though, is nine. So my kids go from 30 to nine. And so um, I can look back over that and realize that I'm a pretty hopeless husband and father, but God rescued me. And so Promise Keepers is not just about honest assessment of our need to get our act together, but an honest humility that says, God, you're the ultimate father. Would you come and inhabit me with your grace, with your presence, and live your life through me? And so there's a, there's a profound part of faith. It's a men's movement, but it's also a faith movement. It doesn't matter what denomination or background you have, but it's, it's like AA in that sense. You know how they talk about a higher power? And there's that sense of unless you acknowledge, you need to be a little bit rescued and you need to acknowledge your accountability to something beyond yourself, then you're going to be toast and it's not going to work. And this is something even more important than you transcending habits and appetites. This is where you've got a wife and kids and you've got people looking at you who are utterly dependent on you. And in fact, their picture of who they could be, their picture of what God is like is coming from how you treat them as one of the authority figures in their life. And so... Uh, you know, we need to come together and listen to and learn from each other. So there's a strange intimacy about Promise Keepers, people turning to one another in small groups. It's not a show. It really is a conference. Now, you've obviously travelled around the globe uh, doing missionary work with YOM, Promise Keepers, uh, lots of different missions and ministries. Have you got any stories of any, you know, real dangerous situations you've been in, any that, any that you can recall at the moment that you want to share with us? Well... You're always in danger in terms of uh, illness. You know, I'm on my way to West Africa. <laughs> West Africa is one of my favorite places, but, you know, you're just in the middle of, of crowds of people and they all want to hug you and, you know, uh, you just have to trust God and go for it. Eat what's set before you. Show affection and respect to everybody. You can't be some kind of paranoid when it comes to that. Then there's other dangers that come from the politics of revolution and military stuff. I was in Jakarta, you know, in uh, May the 20th, a few years ago, when the, there was the change between the regime of Sahatu and Habibi. And so uh, I, I, over a 1,000 people died during that time around me, and uh, I was put up high in a building to keep out of the way of uh, the trajectory of bullets. But um, each day we'd have to make our way through the streets, through the roadblocks, and and uh, there's, there's lots of drama going on uh, in my life like that. That's, that's, uh, this is a difficult, dangerous time to be a missionary. Uh, we have had 14 people killed or died one way or another uh, in about an eight-week eight period around Christmas time. And so part of the things that I face as a, uh, the president of Youth of the Mission is, is dealing with 
with people who've laid down their lives, dealing with grieving families who, who honour, you know, their... In one case, I've, I've come recently from the funeral of a young woman, uh, 25 years old, killed in Nigeria. Uh, she was an American, but she was uh, out of the Perth base. And, um, you know, so, you know, just going to the airport particularly outside of Down Under, in the big world out there, that's to go to the front line because of terrorism. And uh, you've got to make your peace with God about that stuff. I was actually in Kenya um, September the 8th, uh, and in my Bible reading, and that morning my Bible reading was in uh, the book of Revelation, the last book in the Bible, chapter 3. And in there, there's these words that says, because you've been faithful, I will deliver you from this great calamity which is about to come upon the earth. And it sort of leapt out at the page, off, off the page and talked to me. And then I thought, nah, you know, I'm just talking to myself in Jesus' name. And then I looked at the hospitality basket. Some of the staff had put some fruit in and there was a little note in there. And they said, we've been praying for you and we feel to give you the scripture. And it was the same scripture. So I thought, gee, God is really speaking to me. Then I went downtown in Nairobi, and I was um, looking at the place where Al-Qaeda had blown up the embassies, and I was talking about all that stuff. And then I got on the plane uh, a couple of days later, and then I flew through that airspace, and then I landed in Los Angeles, having thrown you know, through Europe, uh, the Middle East, and America. And uh, you know, when I got to my house, I turned on the TV and here these planes were coming down, same flights. American and United flights, same airline, same destinations that I'd just come from. And so at that point, I understood why God had given me that comforting promise, just saying, look, son, just keep going out on the airplanes. You're not going to die, and tell your family not to be afraid. Now, I don't believe it's my right not to die. In fact, I've yielded that right. And if you hear that I've died, that's not a problem. I already, got, you know, I already volunteered for that. That's what missionaries do. But we also... Do what the Bible says. We live by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And there's a personal dialogue between God and his children. You know, God, God is among us in a spiritual form and walks and talks with us, what we call conscience in literature. There's more than just the natural dimension. There is a spiritual dimension. And there's more than just a creator that created us who has personality. There's a creator that can be known through Jesus. And that's why Christians are always going on about the cross. It's not because of a morbid fascination with an ancient Roman form of execution. It's because of the simple idea that when there is alienation in a relationship and somebody steps in the middle and takes heat in both directions, they make atonement for you, they, they pay a price for you. That's, that's why we're so on about the cross. It, it, it speaks to us as a tremendous act of love on the part of God. Now, John, I'm sure there's people listening they're thinking, wow, this guy's close to God, and I'm not. And they're probably thinking, how can I get close to God like this guy? Speak to that person. What would you say to them? Well, I've just come from Fiji, and I was talking to a guy had, I had breakfast with every morning. And I was thinking, because <laughs> he, he kind of asked me that question the last time we had breakfast together. And uh, I think, really, it's a simple answer. I think we just need to, when we sense that God is there... The real hinge that opens the door, uh, it, the, or, or all things turn on the hinge of humility or arrogance. And um, we are so self-sufficient sometimes, and we need to just say, God help me. And if within our culture we have some revelation of Jesus, then use that. 
even if you've had bitter experiences with the religious people and church and all that, you know, don't let that keep you from God. I mean, uh, there's really only three things that keep us from God. It's It comes down to some appetite we think we're going to have to give up. You know, it's some, just, I believe there's people out there thinking, well, yeah, I know God's good, but if I... If I get around religious people, which you really don't have to do that, you just have to cry out to God, like I just said. But, but there seems to be this little whisper that comes from, from religious culture, says, and, and it affects you in this way. And you think, if I come to God, I'll have to give up my smokes. You see, baloney. You see, now, it's an irony because most of us would like to give up our smokes, and anybody can help us do that, we would do it. You see, but it may be the only comfort that we have, and so it, we get caught in that little simple thing. And and uh, the fact is, just come to God as you are. Whatever mess you are, whatever regrets you have about broken relationship, and you know, being a bad husband or being addicted to this or that, just come to God as you are. The second thing is that keeps us from God is just simply we—it's our pride. We just think, well, you know. I would, but I don't. I really care too much about what my mates think, and I don't want to be seen to acknowledge my need of anybody, even my Creator. And then the third thing is bitterness. When we've had some kind of thing in our personal story that's an offense to us, and we're a little bit mad about it, and we're like a sulky child. Now, we've dressed it up in adult behaviors, but really inside, we're like a sulky child. I had to take aside my little nine-year-old daughter today and give her a little bit of a talk because she wasn't cooperating with mum about her schoolwork, you see. And uh, and she was behaving like nine-year-olds do and carrying a little offense and being non-cooperative. Well, you know, we're all little boys and little girls inside. And so as that little boy and little girl acknowledging our struggle with appetite and with pride and with, with our pains to just come before God. And God in Psalm 18, the Bible just says, pour out your hearts before God, all you people. And then it creates this picture of God hearing the cry of his little one and it says the heavens bent and came down. You might not see anything with a natural eye, but there's nobody that loves you more than God. And so come to God. If you understand the uniqueness of Jesus, please use his name. You say, well, why is that important? Because there is a because Jesus deserves it, basically. Because if you understand the price that Jesus paid so that we could have a revelation of God in the way that, that we do, uh, you know, Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So Jesus takes little kids on his lap, we read in the New Testament. Jesus is patient and long-suffering. He doesn't retaliate. He, he you know, he just, he just brings this incredible picture of the approachability of God the Father. So acknowledge Jesus and cry out to God the Creator and just say, help me. Reveal yourself to me. And I, I believe in a childlike way you'll begin a journey. And, um, you know, you can pick up the Scripture and, and explore that. You can ask somebody that you think has characteristics that are godly. That doesn't mean they're necessarily religious or in a religious hierarchy. But somebody that has what the Bible calls the fruits of the Spirit patience and self-control and loving kindness, those kinds of things. And, um, you know, sometimes we, uh, we see people using the name of Jesus in religious institutions and we, you know, but don't let the smokescreen of religious structure keep you from seeing the true nature and personality of God. Just start talking to him. Just start talking to God. Uh, now tell us if anyone wants to find out more details about YWAM, what would be a good website for them to go to? Well, <clears throat> there are many websites. There's <laughs> got to be one for Australia. There are many strong YWAM bases, and they all have their own websites. And uh, it's it's not a centralised thing. And so I'd really encourage people just to 
go to YWAM and then you'll see a great smorgasbord of options there. Yeah. John, you certainly are a history maker. God bless you. Thanks for Thank joining you. us. Thanks, man. History. Thank you so much for joining us at History Makers. For more information, you can go to historymakersradio.com. History Makers is brought to you by newhopeaustralia.org.au. History Makers.